You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America, Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to your one beacon of independent conservative thought here at the conservative conscience on Westwood One's podcast network. This is Daniel Horowitz in the house Thursday, September 20th, when we are still five days into the saga talking about sex and rape charges and a Supreme Court nominee that shouldn't even be that important when we should all be focused on the budget bill, which is not just some nerdy uh, issue dealing with dollars and cents, but every single policy that matters to why we're even having these fights, why we even have this acrimony between the two parties. You know, Yesterday I was out. I meant to put, put another podcast in the hopper before I, I uh, took, took leave yesterday. For Yom Kippur, the holiest day on the Jewish calendar, it's a day we we fast all day, stand in prayer before God, ask for atonement for our annual sins, understand the infallibility of a human being. And I so badly didn't want to come back. You know, when you try to have spirituality in your life, and then, you know, there's one thing if you go back to your line of work, if, if you're dealing with analyzing policy, analyzing the law, all right, you know, okay, fine, we do that for a living. But then I realized I'm in the wrong business for that. See, public policy is not really about policy. It's about the soap opera. You don't have to be an expert in policy to be in this business. You have to be an expert in sex and soap operas. So we're still talking about the Kavanaugh stuff. Now look, with the Democrats throwing a basis allegation around and then not taking the offer from the Judiciary Committee chairman to hold an open or closed hearing to hear this woman out, and she doesn't want to be heard, so then done. Then just hold a vote right away and and move on with this, and we should really be talking about the budget bill. And we're going to have Congressman Jim Jordan on today, who's running for speaker, to talk about this. He's one of the few who's focusing on it, wants to have the fight. We're in the waning days of this fiscal year, There's just eight legislative days left to Congress. They're both out of session now after being out of session for six weeks and then coming back for a week. So this is your last opportunity with control, with possession of the ball to influence the election. And where are they? Where are they? Our founders would have left at Congress abdicating, or at least the majority party in control, abdicating control of the purse, the president abdicating the veto pen. I understand you know, he has mentioned on Twitter today that he's not happy with the bill, but why is he not threatening a veto? He has, he has failed to veto a single bill yet. You know, He's really walking in the footsteps of George W. Bush on this issue, who in the first term of his presidency didn't veto a single bill. Second term he vetoed about 13, you know, once Democrats took over Congress. But um, you know, aside from Bush and Trump, I mean again, Trump it's only 19 months or so, 18 months. So we'll see what happens, but so far 
the the last time you could find a president that, except for the ones that were assassinated or died shortly after, that didn't issue a single veto. I think you got to go back to Martin Van Buren. <laughs> so um, it, it's kind of ridiculous. But the notion that the presidency wouldn't really matter, Congress wouldn't matter. They only matter to the extent that they nominate and confirm a Supreme Court justice. So before we bring on Jim Jordan to, to get back into the budget bill, just a word on the Supreme Court stuff. So, you know, obviously we always take allegations seriously. If, if you know someone wants to accuse someone of rape and they're going to be nominated or elected to a high office, so let's hear the person. If they don't want to be heard, so then done. We can't have this notion that someone could just toss around the 35-year-old allegation where there's no evidence someone's entire life stands in contrast to that, and that's it. We should just believe it based on the allegation without even bringing the person in. I mean, you know I'm not a Republican cheerleader. You know I'm independent. I hate the Republicans as much as I hate the Democrats. But when you look at what the Democrats are doing on this issue, it's indefensible. I don't understand how you could say someone could just come in, write a letter to the Senate Judiciary Committee, like, I believe them. Done. No evidence unless – what? I mean, have we really gotten this far that because of the hatred on the issues, which we don't even focus on the issues much, therefore I'm just automatically going to believe anything about my political opponent that has nothing to do with policy when there's no evidence? I mean, if it's gotten this far, then forget about the Supreme Court nominee. We need to work towards a different solution to our entire government because this is not going to work. You know, I'll tell you this much. I hate Ben Cardin with the heat of a thousand blazing suns. You know, he's been, since the 80s, our state legislative rep. He was the Speaker of the House in Maryland, then the congressman, then the senator, my family's had run-ins with him, you know, at the polls years ago when he used to campaign. I can't stand the guy. Socialist. But, you know, I'm, I'm just using this as an example. Everything I know, he's been faithful to his wife, Myrna, for many decades that they've been mar- married. And let's say someone would just suddenly come up with some allegation. You know, let's say he was slated to, I don't know, be maybe chosen as a VP candidate or something. Whatever. And someone would toss around some sort of sexual allegation or something. I mean, without evidence, as much as I would kind of salivate of his political demise, I wouldn't go and believe it. And certainly publicly, you, you can't do that. But this is, this is how bad it's become. But it also demonstrates the false god of the Supreme Court. That it's gotten so bad... That anything pertaining to a Supreme Court pick from now until the end of times now will only involve nuclear warfare. Started with Bork, then Clarence Thomas, and now we're, we're, we're never going to look back on this. The founders would laugh at that. You know, until 1916 with Louis Brandeis, you didn't even have an open hearing from the Senate Judiciary Committee. In fact, Really, the first, most of the first uh, 70 or so years, the majority of the votes on Supreme Court justices were unanimous consent. 
They didn't spend much time at all on that. Because in the earlier part of a republic, when we followed the constitutional blueprint, the Supreme Court was the weakest, not the strongest branch of government. What's funny is that right after the government was founded, so James Wilson, who was arguably the second most important influence of the Constitution after Madison, brilliant, towering intellect, brilliant legal mind, probably the foremost legal mind of his generation, really one of the underappreciated founders. Um, James Wilson was just a brilliant, brilliant man in, in, in really all respects. Truly, truly was. So anyway, he was a nerd. So he wanted a nerdy job. Right after the government started functioning in 1789, he sent a letter to George Washington asking him if he could be chosen as the chief justice. That, that's what he wanted. You know, he was a, just wanted to deal with the nuts and bolts of law. And, you know, because he, he really sacrificed a lot. He, he took a lot of hits. Yet you have to understand that he was from Pennsylvania, which was one of the biggest states at the time that really stood to lose from the Connecticut Compromise that ultimately forged the Constitution, giving so much power to the smaller states in the Senate. And he took a lot of flack back home. But ultimately, he shepherded a very close debate in the Pennsylvania ratifying convention. And because of them, really, all the dominoes fell. fell. Meaning, if, if Pennsylvania wouldn't have ratified the Constitution, it wouldn't have happened. And it wouldn't have been ratified without James Wilson. So he wanted to you know, be picked as chief justice. And Washington declined... He, he nominated him as one of the original six or five associate justices, along with, what's his name, uh, Blair, Cushing, um, Rutledge. Uh, I'm forgetting who else you had back then. <laughs> you could look it up, the original roster. And then who, who did he pick as chief? He picked John Jay. John Jay was the flashy politician. You know, he eventually was Secretary of State. He, he was a politician. Um. But James Wilson was, wasn't much of a politician. He was more of a legal mind, and he wanted the job. And I think he didn't get it because he just he had financial problems, and um, I, I guess Washington was worried about that. It was more of a personal matter. And he was passed up several, several times, never, never really got that job that he wanted. Um, he was upset, but he was never overly bitter about it. But anyway, the funny thing is, so... John Jay leaves the court after a short while to become Secretary of State, and that's what he was. He was a politician. Then, when John Adams took over, he wanted to renominate Jay as Chief Justice again. And Jay sends this bitter letter, was like, "This place stinks. It's the worst. It's the worst uh, job you could have. It, it is no respect." And it just really gives you a glimpse. Um. As to just just the nature of what the Supreme Court was and what it was supposed to be by its first decade, he would rather be something like Secretary of State than be Chief Justice. That's what it was meant to be. That's why none of this should even be a discussion. Congress has the power over the courts. 
change their jurisdiction, could do anything to them. And of course, the power of the purse. So there's a lot of things we, we have to catch up on, a lot of news. There's a lot going on on legal and illegal immigration. I have a number of articles I want to link to. There's some other ancillary issues that you're not going to hear about elsewhere, but I think it's important to discuss either t- today or tomorrow. But I want to get to Jim Jordan. So for you folks in the audience, you don't really need much of an introduction for Congressman Jim Jordan. Obviously, he's the representative from Ohio's 4th Congressional District in the northwestern part of the state. But most of you know him as more of a national conservative leader because there's so few of them. He is the original founder of the Freedom Caucus, and he's also, more importantly, running for speaker this term. So I promised you we'd get kind of the barometer of what's going on in Congress, what his plan is uh, for the speaker's run, and everything else going on. Hey, Jim Jordan, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine, Daniel. Good to be with you. You know, I am just stupefied by what's going on. There's always drama and soap opera going on in the news, and I understand the left's going to get our guys caught up in it. But I've always felt that when you're a balloon in the wind and you don't have your own rudder, so then you're going to be driven by whatever narrative is thrown at you. Um, We should have a narrative now. We should have a lot of narratives now. It all comes down to a budget. We can't pass legislation. We never do. But the only opportunity you have to pass not just your spending levels but your priorities is through a budget. The Senate is already done. Their work is done. They passed a budget bill um, not only codifying every Democrat priority, Democrat spending levels, plus the omnibus spending levels, plus several percentage increase in some of the worst agencies like education, HHS. Um, They actually have riders helping the open borders invasion in the Office of Refugee Resettlement, demanding that more be done to unite families, but nothing to be done for the American people to block the bogus asylum, the bogus self-trafficking of these UACs that bring in drugs. What am I missing, and how come you're the only one talking about this? (laughs) Well, you you are right. Unfortunately, it's a bill that spends too much. Uh, it's a bill that funds things we said we wouldn't, doesn't fund things we said we would, like the border security wall, um, and most importantly, doesn't isn't consistent with what we told the voters we we're going to do, and maybe most importantly, doesn't get accomplished what they sent us to Washington to accomplish, and that's that's the part that is so frustrating for for me, and I know if it's frustrating for me, imagine imagine how the American taxpayer and the American people feel. So. Uh, look, we blew our chance back in the omnibus. You and I have talked about this, Daniel. Back in the spring, we had a chance because Chuck Schumer had shut the government down several weeks before that on a short-term funding bill. He had said amnesty was more important than funding our troops and funding the government. We were so poised to break the pattern, the pattern that developed under Obama and Harry Reid, where for every dollar you get for defense, they hold that bill up and say, no, we demand a dollar-for-dollar increase in all the rest of government, in all the social welfare spending and all the big government programs. And that's been the pattern, and the the taxpayer loses and and the swamp wins. We were poised to break that, but instead of having to fight, instead of doing the right thing, we had a 2,232-page bill that's been a a $1.3 trillion, funded things that we said we would, and it did all those bad things. And we didn't fight, and we just gave in. And now we're at this point where the Senate passes something very similar, uh, and it looks like the House is going to pass it. I don't think you'll see any Freedom Caucus members vote for it, and I think there'll be a lot of other conservatives in the House who will also vote against it. But, I mean, are you telling us that there's no real way you guys could fight it? I mean, that the the it, the thing is kind of cooked now? 
I think, unfortunately, I think that's probably the case because we blew the chance. We should have fought it back in the spring. And remember when the president even got the bill, he said he was going to veto it that morning. We should have done it. But when, 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 and our conference wanted to, Republic, we, we conservatives had our conference convinced this was the time to break that pattern. And this was the time to start to get a handle on holding the line on spending and start to address the big deficit and the, and the huge debt that we face. Um, but instead, our leadership said, no, 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 we're going to do what the Senate wants to do. We're just going to go along with it. It's the easy thing to do. I, I always tell folks, my background is wrestling. And in wrestling, you walk out and you shake hands and then the referee blows the whistle and you go at it. What we typically do in Washington is we walk out. We shake hands, and right before the ref's going to blow the whistle to start the match, we say, timeout, we're just, we're, we're, we're just going to forfeit. We're not even going to fight. We're not even going to wrestle. And, and that's what our leadership has done time and time again, and that has what it, that's what's got to change if we're going to get done what we were elected to do. So I think this is a good segue into talking about your speakers, Ron, because what we have here, um, everyone's focused on the Senate. You know, everyone's always focused on the Senate. So now they're obviously busy with the whole brouhaha over the crazy allegations against Kavanaugh. But House members mm-hmm. don't deal with that. They don't vote on that. And the Senate passed this bill that, again, is indis- indistinguishable from anything that would have passed under Democrat control. Indeed, every Democrat voted for it. Um, but there's two other branches of government. You have the, or at least branches in terms mm-hmm. of legislation. You got the president who indicated this morning he's not happy with it. He has a he has a potentially a veto power, or he always has the veto power he could potentially use. Then there's the House of Representatives. So what I'm not understanding is, you know, Kevin McCarthy. Uh, presumably, he wants to be speaker after Paul Ryan retires. He's currently majority leader. He should have a big say in this. What I don't understand is, yes, we don't have 60 votes in the Senate, but in the House, they do have simple majority control. With majority control, you could very quickly pass anything in the House, much quicker than the Senate. Why has the House not even tried to pass their version of what they want to put towards the American people uh, You know, in the waning weeks of the election? You, you, you sound like a Freedom Caucus member. This is the debate we have in the Freedom Caucus. Why aren't we passing our bills? Why aren't we passing them with Republican principles in them? And why aren't we passing them in a way that actually controls the spending and begins to address the debt ter- uh, concerns that we have? So, uh, look, we ask the same question. But so often the answer is, oh, the filibuster rule in the Senate. You need 60 votes to do anything. So we can't, we can't do anything unless we got Democrats. I say baloney. Why not just change the filibuster rule? We've changed it for Supreme Court nominees because we know that you need good people on the court and we can't constitutionalists on the court. And you can't have eight, 10 Democrat senators vetoing that. So we should do the same thing on on spending bills, because if we don't, we won't get the priorities done that the American people elected us to do. And the biggest one, of course, is securing the southern border and building the border security wall. So to be clear to our listeners, what you're saying is even if you don't get rid of it for legislation, you could simply say, look, we're not going to hold up budget bills and have this specter of a government shutdown every time you have a minority. But let me just challenge that point for uh, for a moment to actually make your point stronger. It's not just the filibuster. I mean, if you would take this thought process to its logical conclusion, what it would mean is that when Democrats have the White House, the House and the Senate, albeit Republicans, have more than 41 <laughs> votes. Somehow, Republicans will get everything they want, but that never happens. I mean, yeah, yeah. it's it just it, it, it is so ridiculous. You know, I was recently reminiscing. It, it, with, it, it, yeah. No, I was just going to say, Dave, it, it's a lack of political will. At some point, it's about political will. Do we have the will to frame it up 
go through the hard work you need to go through to win the debate. We now have a guy in the White House who's really, really good at conveying a message. We should be using the, the power that President Trump has to convey. He doesn't like these kind of pieces of legislation. He's frustrated as we are. So we, if we would frame this up and we would demonstrate a willingness to fight, a willingness to engage in, in the debate, particularly last spring after Schumer had shut the government down, the next couple of days, the American people said, you're crazy. He comes back, reopens the government, says, Shazam, I've changed my mind. We're going to reopen the government because I, I've actually now seen that the American people say amnesty is not more important than funding the troops, which, which was his position. That was the backdrop. How do you not then go have the debate and go have the fight and not win that? We just forfeited then and we were poised to win. So that, that it all comes down to political will. Can, can you imagine if we would have hid behind the filibuster rule? We have this presidential election. Obama, back before the race, Obama nominates Mayor Garland. And Mitch McConnell, to his credit, says, nope, we're not going to take it up. We're in the midst of a presidential race. We're going to let the American people decide who their president is, let that individual nominate the next justice to the Supreme Court. And the American people chose President Trump. And he nominates then Neil Gorsuch. Could you imagine then if, Neil, if, if uh, Mitch McConnell says, you know what, I've changed my mind. We're going to stick with the filibuster. It's going to take 60 votes to put Gorsuch on the court. The American people would have went crazy. They said, "What? We just had a now. You're now you're going to go back to some. So we just have to have the political will to say, if we're going to get the wall done, if we're going to get the border security done the way it needs to be, we're going to have to ditch the filibuster to have a chance to get it done. So th- that's that's the kind of political pressure that needs to be put in place so that we can win these things. Wow. You know, I'm just thinking as you're talking about the Supreme Court, the juxtaposition is so powerful because the founders would have, if you would have asked them what's more important, the congressional power of the purse or the Supreme Court, they would have laughed at you. The, the fact that we make the, the courts the most important thing, that's the one thing we'll kind of fight on. But yet, at the same time, they just blow through a budget, which yeah, is really your point. your ability to affect everything, including the courts, by the way. I mean, they could strip their jurisdiction. They could do so much to them. Um, you know, one of the things that I was very concerned about, in addition to the border wall, is that we have a problem with. I would I would say it's more the policy than statute of these asylees and UACs coming over the border in the hundreds of thousands. We now know that in the month of August, more came over because we're encouraging yep. them. And you know, the um, one of the top ICE officials just testified before Ron Johnson's committee in the Senate uh, a couple of days ago, saying that eighty percent of these children, many of them are you know were 15, 16-year-old Central American teens in 2014. Now they're 19, 20. Some of them are MS-13 members, as the head of uh, Suffolk County Police in New York said, that the entirety of their gang problem came from among the population that came over. 80% of them were delivered into the hands of other illegal alien relatives. Um, A substantial portion, he said, themselves have criminal records. I mean, we're being taken advantage of, but here's the thing, Jim. I saw there was a rider. You know, they always tell, oh, no, we can't have riders. They had a policy rider, two of them actually, in this bill they just passed coming before your your house um, saying that uh, ORR must work more diligently to come up with a strategy to reunite them somehow and then also allow any House members to agitate and allow themselves into these detention facilities. I'm thinking – so. You have the gumption to put in riders when you want, but what? But then they're like, "Oh no, 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 we we can't, uh, 
you know, block well, sanctuary it's, cities. It's, we can't defund Planned Parenthood. What? Yeah, it's, 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 yeah, the writers that get in is, are the ones that have a broad Democrat support, not the ones that are consistent with what the American people elected Republicans to do when they gave us the House, the Senate, and the White House. It's, it is as frustrating as it gets. I, I couldn't, you've been great on this issue, Daniel, pointing out that, look, so much of the drug problem, so much of the gang violence in this country is directly attributable to not having control of the border and to our poor immigration policies. I mean, the president's been great on this. Understand, this is why you need a wall. This is why you need to secure a border. Every sovereign nation has a right to have borders and have control of their borders. This idea that we're going to be, as, as Secretary Clinton said during the campaign, a borderless hemisphere where, there, where, where you don't have control of what's happening on, this, on the southern end of, of the uh, uh, border is, is just crazy. And most Americans get that. The only ones who don't seem to be politicians in the United States Senate. So my question to you is, you know, what is your plan if you were to become speaker? Let's say they keep the House, which, you know, (laughs) the likelihood is really diminishing if they don't do anything now. But you keep the House. um, What is the chances or what is the strategy to make the House great again? I look at what's going on and. I was talking to a colleague recently that I remember like it was yesterday in 2010 when we were running to take back the House originally. I remember writing press releases for candidates and members of Congress using the figure of $14 trillion in debt. And we were using like, can you believe it's $14 trillion in debt? We are now a third higher than that with Republicans yeah. having controlled the body of Congress that most easily – and in the most lean manner, could pass swiftly pass a budget for for what seven years, eight years, and you know. So we all we talk about is the Senate. What is your strategy to make the House the leader on the budget? Uh, broad principle number one is do what we said. Um, do what we said we would do. I, I say this all the time. We make Congress too complicated. Our job is pretty basic. What did you tell the voters you're going to do when you ran for the job? They elected you and gave you the privilege to go serve. Go do what you said. It never hurts to keep your promise. So we will have to pass a spending bill. I would advocate pass the defense bill first. That's the, that's the, the primary thing we're supposed to do. That's the one of most importance, Constitution, that we're supposed to spend your tax dollars on. Pass the defense bill and say, until that is passed, we are not going to let anything else pass when it comes to uh, the funding bills. So you have to break the pattern of them holding our troops hostage to get all their left-wing spending. Then when you do that, say, now we're going to have a debate on everything else. And we told the voters we're against funding Planned Parenthood. We're not going to fund it. We told the voters we're going to fund a border security wall. We are going to fund that. you got to have the fight, and you enlist the president, who is so darn good at conveying a message. You enlist him in this battle, and that's how you win. And at some point, you're going to have to tell Mitch McConnell, look, you got to get rid of the 60 votes. You can't, you can't do it. And then if we lose, if we lose 51-49, then whoever votes against this on the Republican side, they'll have to go back to their state and they'll have to explain to their voters why they didn't do what Republicans were elected to do. And if they can win and by explaining it, okay, that's how the system works. But if they can't, then, then that's how the system works as well. So you, right now what happens with the 60-vote rule is you allow so many senators to avoid taking tough votes. Like, no, let's, let's do what we said and let's do everything we can to get there and if and we fall short, we'll know who's responsible, and the voters will be able to handle that in the next election. That's how the system is supposed to work, and that's how I w- – if I give it the privilege to lead, that's exactly how I'll try to make it work. And then obviously if the House acts first and affirmatively passes what we do believe in 
and then you have the bully pulpit of a president supporting that, yeah. you could batter the Senate into submission, and maybe you know then they'll know they're serious, and they'll actually agree to stuff. But like you said, if you forfeit the fight beforehand, then yeah, I mean there, there's never going to be a desire to change the filibuster. You know, I'm I'm reading um. Interesting quote. I started out the show talking about James Wilson, one of the greatest founders of the country, uh, you know, signed the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. He, he spoke about the separation of powers as follows. He said, the legislature, in order to be restrained, must be divided. The executive power, in order to be restrained, should be one. They wanted yeah. that power in the hand of one person. Because the legislature is more powerful to begin with, but the power they gave to the president, they wanted it manifest in one person, that we would hold him accountable, that he could stand before the people and speak with one voice. Here are my priorities. So, you know, if if your speaker, you pass a good bill and he could say, this is what I want, then and you're doing that, not just, you know, the 11th hour, you're doing that for six to eight months before and you're building the yes, case, yes. then it's, it's, yes. they're the ones shutting down the government. Yeah, so th- th- that, that's how American politics is supposed to work. You have the big, bold ideas that, are, that you campaign on. The American people say, yes, that's what we want. They elect you. Go put those into practice. Go past them and then let the other side debate you. But do a long debate, a full debate, where you enlist the president of the United States saying, no, this is what we campaign on. This is what we got to get done. You play that out, I think public opinion goes the right way. It goes the same way it did in the election because they elected those people based on those principles, based on those ideals and those concepts. So that's exactly how it has to play out, and that's exactly how the founders envisioned it would play out. And particularly on the issue of immigration, it's not complicated. It speaks to people. Sovereignty, security, we're being taken advantage of. This really traverses even the typical – uh, social fiscal policy lines, polarization in the country. The majority don't want this. And the, the proof is like what you said. The Democrats know they're getting beaten on that. Uh, it, it's almost as if they're not holding back on everything. They are as radical as I've ever seen. But the one thing that they're walking back, if you've noticed, is this abolish ICE thing. Like, well, no, no, we never actually meant yeah. to say that. I mean, so yeah. – what better time now than to pursue them, give ICE more funding, uh, easier deportation for criminal aliens, defunding sanctuary cities. Nobody likes sanctuary cities. Um, that could easily be put into the budget. And I, I'm not even seeing a whimper of a fight in the House. Is there anything you guys could do? Everyone's asking me, the Freedom Caucus, the Freedom Caucus, where are they? What could they do? Is there anything you guys could do before the election, or is it really well, just the threat we, of the Speaker's fight? We're, we're, we're actually talking about filing a, you know, uh, filing amendments uh, that would address the things you just described, address the border security wall and the border uh, security situation. Um, at least taking those to the Rules Committee. I, my guess is the Rules Committee would vote not to make those in order, so we wouldn't even get to offer them uh, on the on the spending bill. I, as I said before, uh, Daniel, I think you'll see this package when it when it comes out, or uh, when we when we're when we get a vote on it next week. Um, and I I do want to go back to one thing you said. I I think the left is is taking on the most radical positions uh, I, I've ever seen. Not just on abolishing ICE, but I mean, this this now is the party. The Democrats are the party that says we're going to um, applaud Colin Kaepernick when he disrespects the flag. We're going to embrace Governor Cuomo when he says uh, America was never that great. And they're going to cheer on Maxine Waters when she says go out and harass uh, anyone who supports the president. So that is now the party of the left and the Democrat Party. And I, I would argue the most extreme positions in American history. So we need to show that over the next several weeks in this campaign. 
We need to highlight the tremendous record under the president in the last 20 months. And then we also need to talk about, look, said, well, there's no way those things are going to get done. I spend if we then, then it's going to be a lot harder. Yeah, you know, and, and we're kind of losing you here. And I know you're on your way to an event. Um, at least you're utilizing some of your time off. <laughs> it's funny. It's like they got six weeks off and then a week in and then just eight more days and then they're yeah. out. I know. What a way to throw oh, away know. the ball. <laughs> you know? um, yeah, I wish we I wish we were doing I wish we were doing the border security wall fight right now as we had. I know you agree with that. You, you, uh, well, anyway, th- thanks so much for joining us, uh, Congressman Jordan, and and good luck on your fight for speaker. Keep us updated. Um, we will. Con- you, you you still there? I am. I am, Daniel. We will. Thanks so much. Take care, brother. Take care. Okay. Well, there you have it, folks. Yeah, we kind of lost Congressman Jordan, but you guys certainly get the point. I'm I'm sorry for the static there. I mean, that's the thing. And you know, he's on his way to a bunch of events. And just so you know, the life of a congressman, I mean, all of them are busy. I mean, whether you agree with them or not, Democrat or Republican, but the difference is that the Democrats have their leadership and their party infrastructure fighting their battles. They just have to kind of go along. If if your party is really part of the problem, you have to create the infrastructure, policy, messaging, strategies on your own, and they're all individually very busy. He's doing what he can, but I think – you know, a big takeaway there is they just don't have the numbers. You know, what, what everyone's saying is, oh, Republicans need more numbers, just elect more Republicans. But the problem is it, it has nothing to do with that. It's that conservatives don't have the numbers within the Republican Party to affect much because there just aren't enough of them. Obviously, the speaker's race will be a big thing, but A, I, I fear it's going to be too late. I fear they're going to lose the House anyway. So then it's just going to be a matter of who's going to be minority leader. And even for minority leader, I you know I I hate to say this but I I don't know if he has the votes because we failed to elect enough people like him that at least want to do the right thing. It's funny watching the Democrats. You just watch them. And they have well-organized primary challenges even against guys that are totally with them. I mean every Democrat's with them. It's just a matter of style, really, more than substance that that they go after them for. Yet we have one member after another in in red districts that that don't follow the party platform, and they're not Republican, they're not conservative, and there's no effort to go after them. No effort whatsoever. Um, it just it's just unbelievable. It truly, truly is. You know, recent polls have really shown that there is such an opportunity to go after the left on sanctuary cities. But they won't do it. They won't do it. What better time than now to harness that fight? Um, but this is it. There's really not much you can do when you don't have a movement. And when we don't have a movement, buttressing the... Pre- See, I think they don't... They don't trust the president's tweet. I mean, from what I've heard, the president has signed off on this garbage. But then what he does is he goes and just tweets his frustrations. So that's why no one believes it. But if the president would have been dead serious for the, you know, ever since he said, I will never sign another budget bill like this again in March, if every day for six months, as we've been saying for six months, he 
would go out there and say, I will veto a bill without these priorities. I think you would have seen a different trajectory. Yeah, now in the 11th hour, we're like, oh, it's too late. I can't do it. I mean, this is what bothers me. Obviously, Jim's not going to say this, but, you know, the president is not innocent <laughs> on this matter either. You know, as I'm talking, I'm looking at a poll that Congressman Bloom in Iowa, he's a Freedom Caucus guy. He is trailing 51 to 37% in Iowa's first district. And from that interactive poll that was done, they found in the state of Iowa, or at least in that district, 54 by a margin of 54 to 36, so it's an 18-point spread, Voters oppose the steel and aluminum tariffs. I mean, really? So we're going to die on that hill? Something that's not even conservative? On taxing raw goods, which affects everything? Worse than tariffing you know, end-user items? I mean, raw goods are just devastating because it affects so many industries. I, I just... It, it's so dumb. We're... I know I sound like a broken record, but we're dying on the other side's hills. What are we doing here? What are we doing? Someone explain that to me. You know, at some point I need to have a conversation with him about, you know, the next step. But I think I'm going to have to wait until after after the elections and after what I think will be the result of the speaker's race about really pursuing a, a, a totally different strategy and, and, and a different a different party, at least in some sort of way that that's going to change the way we do business here because what we're doing now just ain't working. It just is not working one iota. And sadly, people don't even realize it. I mean, this is what bothers me about this Fox News talk radio circuit. I don't mean all talk radio. There's a lot of different people on it that have just been so into their their own weird issues. I mean, I turn on the radio in my local market every day, and it's just it's the same stuff, and, and they think everyone thinks like them, and they don't realize there are voters that get fooled by some of this stuff but you could win them on substance if you actually had an agenda. You're not going to win them on your latest Mueller hot take. But anyway, there's a poll from um, Public Opinion Strategies that fully half of self-identified Republicans don't believe Democrats are likely to win back the House. And within that group, 57% of people describe themselves as strong Trump supporters don't believe Democrats have a chance. Overall, 71% of respondents said it was extremely or somewhat likely that Democrats would prevail, but not among Republican voters. I mean, that's the problem. We're convincing ourselves that – I mean, if nothing else, you need to wake people up. I mean, even if your solution is to all vote more Republican, well, don't think you're winning. I mean, the worst thing to do is think you're winning when you're not. I never understood this effort to – on the right to suppress any information indicating that we're going to get crushed. It's better to deal with that now than deal with that the day after the November 7th election. 
But, um, you know, that's just me. That's just me. And I just want to go back to one thing. We don't have we don't have so much time today to get into immigration. I want to get get into that in a later date. The, just some new information. But I referenced something about a top ICE official and his testimony. I want to read this to you from Stephen Dynan of the Washington Times. The government says it's being forced to turn illegal immigrant children over to sponsors who are themselves in the U.S. illegally. And many of those adults already have criminal records, leaving the kids in precarious position. Matthew Albans, the chief deportations at U.S. uh, Immigration Customs Enforcement, told senators during a hearing Tuesday that nearly 80% of the kids nab jumping the border end up being placed in the households with illegal immigrants. And by the way, you, you understand that that means that they're not eligible. You know, a lot of people say, well, the law requires us to resettle them. And if they're kids coming from Central America, not Mexico, they, they can't be repatriated. They have to be treated as refugees. That's only if they're unaccompanied, meaning they don't have a relative here. But if they're being sell and they're a severe victim of trafficking uh, or a victim of, quote, a severe form of tra- trafficking. That's the term used in the statute. But – if they're being self-trafficked by their own families to be reunited with other illegals who themselves should be deported, they're not eligible. You don't need a s- statutory change, but you know to the extent you believe so, at least put it in the budget bill. And by the way, he said, this guy at the committee, a large chunk of the adults are flagged for criminal entanglements. And, and just so you know, this hearing was only ho- held not – to deal with the concerns that we have from the invasion, it was how could we be nicer to the invasion? It was mainly all the Democrats and two-thirds of the Republicans. The focus was mainly scrutinizing government officials on how they treat the illegals. It wasn't like, hey, what the heck? We're, we have stolen sovereignty here. It was just this came out from the hearing. But wanted you guys to know that. I mean, it's something I've been touting for a while. But um, here you have the head of ICE's deportation unit officially uh, substantiating that claim that most of them indeed are reunited with illegal alien families. And again, very importantly, um, he's saying a large chunk have criminal records. Because as you well know, a large chunk of illegal aliens are violent or just you know criminal elements aside from coming here illegally. But we don't have a narrative on that. The public agrees with us on this issue. But we're slated to lose an election when this should be the biggest issue – Broadly speaking, it was the biggest thing Trump was notorious for, but that's not what's getting across. Now, I understand the left is going to throw everything they have no matter what. Heck, they tossed it at Jim Jordan himself. You know, claiming that, you know, 30 years ago, disprove for me that you didn't know that, um, you know, some people on the coaches on the wrestling team were uh, whatever they were doing to almost adult strong males, which I don't, I just don't understand that whole issue. But whatever. Um, it's just, it's just so bizarre, so bizarre. Anyway, got a lot more coming. Um, I'm going to have, I have already a huge report on quantifying the immigration 
numbers, just the legal immigration, according to census data. And then a new report coming out, courtesy of our buddies at Center for Immigration Studies, on the record number of people speaking foreign languages in this country, 66 million individuals speaking a language other than English at home. Some people you're going to have as immigrants, that's fine, but just the sheer number demonstrates um, we're not having assimilation. We have too many people come in, but we can't have a mature discussion on this and, and other issues. But my commitment to you is we will continue here having that mature discussion, even if everything ultimately devolves into a soap opera. But in order for us to do that, I need you to support our sponsors. I need you to go to purple.com. Take a look at Purple Mattresses. Watch their video on innovation in having the softest yet sturdiest mattress in America, as well as seat cushions, pillows, you name it. You order a mattress with them, and I'm telling you, you will get a free pillow courtesy of Purple Mattresses if you put down promo code DANIEL. 100-day free trial, free trip shipping, free returns if you don't want it after the trial period, but I think you will want it, and once you want it, you get a 10-year warranty. Purple Mattresses, the sturdiest, most comfortable, most scientifically made mattresses in America. Thank you for listening. God bless you all. This, is, this has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conservative Conscience.